Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Magic Mike, the new Steven Soderbergh film starring Channing Tatum as an extremely near-naked male stripper. Um, joining me in the Slate Studios in New York, we're actually in the same studio for the first time in a while, is Dan Coyce. Hi. So thanks for joining me to talk about Magic Mike. Uh, I have no idea what you thought of it. We didn't see it together, and uh, I actually saw it with Swansburg the other day, and was trying to drag him into the studio, but he couldn't. He couldn't make it. He told me to uh, to, to channel some of his uh, his post movie thoughts about Magic Mike. Uh, just first of all, before we get to spoiling, did you like the movie? Overall? I love the movie. You How? knew you you, but you went in with a, with a kind of confirmation bias. You knew oh, you yeah. were going to love the movie, oh, right? Yeah. You're, you're a Soderbergh completist, I should say. You wrote the Slate column, uh, the completest column, which is to say that you watched all of Steven Soderbergh's work and waited on his entire corpus, and you did that just pre. Magic Mike, right? That included Haywire, that. his yeah. last movie. It didn't, no, it included Contagion. It was just before Haywire. Okay, so there have been two two since yes. then. That guy makes movies so fast, it's hard to keep up. It really is. It's insane how productive he is. So, so ha- let's let's think about how this fits into his his oeuvre for a second. Since you since you are the completist, uh, were you surprised that was it, where does this fall in terms of what you broke down as sort of his uh, one for the masses versus one for the for the auteur? Oh, this is definitely an Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's Twelve type movie. I mean, it's it is meant to appeal to a mass audience. It's smart but stupid at the same time. It's you know beautifully filmed as all Soderbergh is, but uh, there's nothing particularly intellectual about it. Nor is there meant to be. I mean, so this and Haywire and the Ocean's but I would movies. say it's sort of personal, right? I mean, unlike the Ocean's movies, it's, it doesn't feel like a big corporate blockbuster. It's got smaller actors in it, really not sure. any huge names in it, and uh, and it all sort of takes place on a on a smaller scale. Sure, but it's still meant to be uh, uh, an entertainment, right? A great entertainment as opposed to uh, a movie where the artistic risks are part of the sort of aesthetic package. Right. The only risks here are basically, is he going to be laughed out of town for making a movie sort of this? This There's parts of this that are almost after school specially and in and, and sort of a, a pleasing yeah. way. Yeah. Um, so the so for those who don't know, well, there's the other risk, of course, which is how much of Matthew McConaughey will we see? Um, but, uh, but so for people who don't know what this movie is about, Magic Mike is the story of Mike. Um, played by Channing Tatum, um, and it's based on Channing Tatum's actual real-life uh, experiences as a uh, stripper before he became fabulous, famous Channing Tatum, um, America's most lovable, hilarious celebrity. Um, but uh, so it's set in Tampa, and uh, Magic Mike is a sort of entrepreneur. Um, he works in construction. He's a roofer. And most of all, he wants to design custom furniture. He designs custom furniture with shit he, that washes up on the beach that he turns into, like, tables and stuff. So it's basically, like, nitrous oxide canisters with right. glass top circles on right, top of them? Right, right. And, like, maybe driftwood? I don't know. But so he does all those things. He, like, has a detailing business. But Mike, of course, is also a stripper. And he uh, dances and also sort of seems to help 
manage a strip club in Tampa called Club Exquisite. Without the E. Without the E. Um, which is owned by Dallas, who's played by Matthew McConaughey, um, in all his McConaughey-ian glory. Yeah, this uh, is just McConaughey at the extreme end of the McConaughey spectrum. So this is the role of his career, obviously. And so if Matthew McConaughey is ever, ever going to win an Oscar... This is the time. And I will go ahead and say right now, for the record, that if Matthew McConaughey is not at least nominated for an Oscar for this, I will kill everyone on the Academy. <laughs> Can I, should I not say that on the radio? Maybe I should just say I will suggestively dance and thrust my groin in the direction of everyone <laughs> in the Academy. Or maybe the Academy gets to choose whether they'd rather be killed or have that That's happen. That's true. That's true. I'll give them the option. But uh, but so um, so Mike works sort of hand in hand with Dallas in, in running uh, Club Exquisite. Um, it's Dallas's club, but Mike is sort of the brains of the operation. Um, he's great at rustling up sorority girls and bachelorettes to come to the club each night. He's also a great performer on stage, and we know we know Channing Tatum can dance from um, Step Up and. Uh, and we know that he's super hot from our eyeballs. And um, so he combines those to be, in addition to sort of the brains of the club, he's its best dancer, its biggest attraction. See, I think the mere fact that we have not yet mentioned Alex Pettifer's character at all speaks oh, right. to the major, major flaw of this movie. I love all of this stuff that you're talking about. The, the way that the, uh, the club exquisite is established as a workplace is just awesome. I yeah. love the kind of wholesomeness and yet incredible raunchiness of the strip routines. And I want to get to talking about some of those routines. And, and Magic Mike is a great character, this kind of outsized personality and this this entrepreneur um, who who kind of rolls through life and seems kind of impervious, essentially, to until three quarters of the way through the movie, he sort of has, has a charmed life and just yeah. seems to be the guy that we all want to be. But unfortunately, the guy that we're supposed to be, the guy that's supposed to be, I think, the proxy for the audience is this really, really bland younger character named, what's the character's name? The Kid. That's, is that all he's called? No, his name's Adam, I think. Adam, that's right, that's yeah. right. Played, uh, by, played by Alex Pettifer, who to me is an incredibly boring actor. I mean, there's just sort of nothing behind his eyes, right? He's sort of the good-looking gap model type or something who looks up to, to Magic Mike and is taken under his wing and eventually becomes a stripper as well. But to me, that was really a weak link in the movie is that we spend a lot of time with Alex Pettifer and his struggles, and I just don't, didn't really care about him at all. Uh, so he's the kid. He Magic Mike takes him under his wing. Um, he's sort of a fuck up. He has trouble holding down a job. He had a football scholarship, which he botched apparently. But by... we don't learn that, excuse me, until way too late into the movie, right? Oh, yes, we get a little true. bit of backstory that shows he's kind of this loose cannon right. when he starts acting like a loose cannon, like three quarters of the way through. Right. But up until then, I just felt like he was such a bland kind of a, just such an obvious um, kind of cipher, right? Who's supposed to be walked through this life with these more interesting people that it just, it, that seemed like a real flaw in the writing or maybe in the casting. Maybe maybe if it had been a more interesting kid playing the kid, I wouldn't have had that problem. But. See, what's interesting is I didn't view him as the audience's proxy at all. I viewed him more or less as the character that they who's like uh, Ellen Page in Inception, right? Where there has to be a character who doesn't know anything about anything so that there's a reason for other people to explain stuff. Right. But Ellen Page is not the point of Inception, and I don't think that Alex Pettifer is the point of Magic but that's Mike. A, but it's a good Magic comparison Mike that Ellen Page is a weak Mike. link in Inception and well, Alex yes. Pettifer is a weak link in this movie. Right, and so that those characters are always are always a little bit schematic and it's true that the drama of Magic Mike ends up revolving around the kid in the sense that he gets you know as he gets more embroiled in this lifestyle he becomes a stripper at the club he's really good at it 
Um, the sorority girls love him. The cougars love him. That's what we hear. The cougars love the kid. This is another thing that I just fundamentally object to. Like, we are not shown why the kid attracts this audience that he does. The very first scene where he strips, essentially, that it's the novelty of a complete amateur just boringly taking off his clothes that makes his very first strip routine work, right? He's pushed out onto the stage because Tarzan, <laughs> who's this, I really want to know more about Tarzan. Yeah. But Tarzan is this really big sort of bear-like, maybe 50-year-old or so Right. Stripper. He's not Mickey Rourke, but obviously they would have cast Mickey Rourke. Very Mickey Rourke in type, yeah. yeah, completely. Who seems like he's sort of had his steroided up periods and is also passes out on the floor so regularly that it's just it's not even a thing when it happens. Right, right. And so the kid has to step in for him as a complete amateur and he takes off his clothes with no flourish whatsoever and gets a huge reaction out of the, the screaming drunk ladies. Okay, I can believe that for one time, but then the fact that McConaughey is coming up to him afterwards and saying, "Kid, you've got it." <laughs> it's just, that was just pure sort of straight out of Forty Second Street or some Broadway musical where we right. it hasn't been proven that he's got it at That's all. That's why I loved it. <laughs> okay, so first of all, the audience at my screening, uh, it was not a mystery to me why people like Alex Pettifer in the sense that he may have nothing behind his eyes, but the audience at my screening was not interested in what was behind his eyes. Uh, <laughs> And, but but even his body compared to these like Roman statues that have been stripping on the stage before him, I don't know. Right, but he's poor got, Alex. I hope you're not listening. God bless you. Uh, I'm sure that Alex can cry himself to sleep on his piles of money um, with his perfectly sculpted abs. But so no, I mean yes, he's a different body type, but he's the, a type that certain that women like in many ways. He's a different kind of stripper. I think that that's why he's appealing to that audience. That's why he certainly was appealing to the audience in my crowd. But I guess the point. I would make about him is that the the drama revolves around him. It's true because he gets wrapped up in this situation and he gets involved in a drug deal with the DJ at the club. Then he loses all the ecstasy because he's a moron. Um, and then so Mike has to bail him out basically. He owes a huge amount of money. Spoiler, by the way. We're going to spoil this movie, although whatever. It doesn't even matter. Um, the real spoiler is everyone gets naked and you should see it. Um, but not that naked. Right? Do we, is there any male frontal? Are there any actual wangs a waven? I don't I think, don't we, think ever... we saw a single wang. No, I don't think we see a wang. That's true. That's this movie's strange combination. I don't know know quite how it does it or what kind of game it's trying to play with sensors and ratings and so forth. What is it even rated? Is it R. rated R? Yeah, it's not. It just it's not as dirty as a lot of R movies. Right? There's right. not any explicit sex. There's not any male or female frontal nudity. There's just a whole lot of suggestive grinding and leather thongs right. and and, 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 and chaps and, and tons of boobs and asses. Um, but so, so the kid is a, is the person around whom the drama revolves, and it's Mike's decisions about the kid that are compelling to us. Like so, in the end, I didn't relate to the kid, nor did I think I was meant to. The kid was a tool for the movie to tell the story it wanted to tell, which is the story of Magic Mike becoming eventually disillusioned with what he's doing and deciding he needs something different in his life. Now, I think you viewed it as a weakness. That for most of the movie, we're meant to uh, we're meant to view Mike Channing Tatum's role as like basically the life we'd love to live, a totally glamorous, uh, hilarious, whirly gig of of like threesomes and cash coming in. No, I love that. I actually love the glamour of Magic Mike's lifestyle and I kind of like the weird pacing of this movie although, you know, in terms of, I don't know, Sid Field's How to Write a Screenplay, it's it's, it's a complete flop because essentially there's no conflict until a good hour into the movie. There's nothing but kind of vicarious entourage style boy fun having, right? Until a good hour in and I actually really love that. I just wish we had a more more compelling, uh, I want to call him a proxy, I don't know what you want to call him, a more compelling cipher to, to bring us into Mike's world. I guess 
and you're you're right that the so the movie does have a really weird structure in that it's like basically yeah, an hour into the movie, finally there's these issues with the kid and his money, and Mike has some decisions to make, and he gets upset with Matthew McConaughey, who's moving the whole club to Miami to the big time. Um, they're going to move to Miami Beach, and he offers Mike a, like a equity in the club, which he's always promised him he would do, but then he also offers it to the kid and seemingly to other people, and Mike gets pissed. Um, but yeah, I didn't mind that in the end because honestly, I would have been perfectly happy if this movie had even less conflict. Like the point of this movie, I feel like, was perfectly encapsulated in the decorations that the publicity people had put up in the theater in the DC screening where I saw it. They had just covered the walls of the hallway into the theater and the walls of the theater with like bachelorette party decorations that they'd picked up at some party store. And that is what this movie is for. This movie is for big groups of people, whether just uh, bachelorette parties or birthday parties or groups of guys who want to have an awesome time or whatever to go to a bar, have like two and a half drinks, <laughs> then get a can of beer, put it in your backpack and go into Magic Mike and watch the movie and have the greatest time of your life. And then there's like a little bit of a downer in the last act while, while they like have, have to enact the plot and there's conflict and stuff. But then it ends up awesome. Yeah, I completely agree that this movie is basically there for vicarious summer fun having. It's sort of the equivalent of going to a strip club, but it's cheaper and more right. wholesome. And <laughs> right, it's so much cheaper. Oh, my gosh. But let's take a quick break before we spoil the end. We haven't even talked about the romance yet either, the, the, the romantic angle. But let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. We are very pleased this week to have once more Audible.com as our sponsor. Audible is the leading provider of digital audio entertainment on the web with over 100,000 titles to choose from. You can find books, periodicals, radio dramas, interviews, you name it. And you can listen to it all on whatever device you're hearing us on right now. And right now, Audible has a special offer for spoiler listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free book by signing up here, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. You can choose a free book from their huge library including everything from classics to current New York Times bestsellers. And we always like to recommend a title on Audible that's somehow thematically connected to our subject. So I entered strippers, the word strippers, into the Audible search window. actually got a lot of uh, interesting-sounding stuff on strippers, including Diablo Cody's memoir from from her stripping days called Candy Girl. But that's not read by her. The one I'm going to recommend, because it sounds like something that I would actually love to listen to, is by Patton Oswalt, the stand-up comedian. It's an essay by Patton Oswalt, also narrated by Patton Oswalt, and it's called Dating a Stripper is a Recipe for Perspective. It's essentially a memoir about all the girls who have dumped him, apparently one of whom was a stripper. So um, that's our Audible recommendation for this week. You can give that a try or any other free book at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Uh, well, that makes a great segue into what we want to talk about next, which is the person who actually does date a stripper, who is Brooke. Um, the love interest in this movie is played by Cody Horn. Um, and uh, she is the kid's sister, the kid's big sister. And he lives with her. She sort of gently tolerates his screw-ups, um, but gets more and more frustrated as she sees him going into this life. But at the same time, she becomes more and more interested in Mike as a character because they have a very easy rapport. He's really interested in her. He really puts on the charm in a way that she seems unused to. And uh, so the other line that's going through this movie is is their relationship and watching it build, watching their interactions, 
uh, and trying to figure out, well, what does Mike see in her? What does she see in him? Is she sort of his way out of this world? Or will her anger at what happens to her brother and how he gets wrapped up in it you know, undercut any relationship she might end up having with Mike. Yeah, once again there, as much as I love the conflict-free first hour gambit that, that Soderbergh is going for here, I think that the the romance between Cody Horn and Channing Tatum, which they actually have awesome chemistry, the two of them, and a really and a kind of unusual chemistry in that they're, um, I don't know, she's kind of boyish and tomboyish, and they, they just kind of, as you say, have this very easy rapport. And I liked all that, but the stakes are just so low in terms of what's happening with the kid, and I feel like there's such an after-school special kind of frantic rush to the, the problems that are, are put on the kid's back in the last hour, so that, as you say, so that there can be a plot to resolve, that I didn't really feel like we had taken a journey exactly with Magic Mike and uh, and Cody Horn, Brooke, whatever the character's name is, right? It just sort of seemed like they had just lounged around looking good in bikinis and shooting the shit, and then right. they had five minutes of problems, and then they were together. I just don't... I feel like all movies should be like that. I don't <laughs> understand why, why this is a problem, necessarily. Why is everything Why is everything not just lounging in bikinis right. and shooting the shit? Right. Everyone looked great. Channing Tatum looks great in a swimsuit. Uh, Cody Horn looks great in her bikini. Everyone looks great in everything. What's the problem? <laughs> well, so my so interestingly, I saw, I saw Magic uh, Mike with my wife, obviously, because um, she was not going to not see this movie. Because um, boom, chicka, boom. Because I mean. boom, chicka, boom. But so she liked a lot of things about it, but she got very frustrated by Brooke. She thought that that character was really unlikable, but sort of more to the point, she felt like there was nothing about her that would make us think that Mike would be interested in her necessarily. And she is a little, I mean, she, like her brother, is a little bit of a cipher. Like he's sort of a, uh, an an ingenuous cipher, and she's sort of a an angry cipher, but they're both sort of ciphers. Um, and she and part of that is the actress. She, I mean, she underplays it a lot. I, I mean, I think she's directed to underplay it a lot. Um, Can we do a sidebar on what a Soderbergh girl she is? I was trying to say this to Swansburg <laughs> when I saw the movie with him. Like her face and her body and her manner is just so obvious that yeah. she's Steven Soderbergh's type, just as much as you know the cool blonde is the Hitchcock type or something. Right. And and I was trying to get at, at what the Soderbergh girl is, and I know that you will know because you've seen all of his movies. I feel like. She has a Jennifer Lopez element, even though she's not, you know, as voluptuous and glamorous as Jennifer Lopez. She's got that same underbite, right? right. The kind of bulldog jaw, right. a very kind of set, impassive face. She, you know? I mean, she definitely gives the main character shit. Like her role is to to take a character who's cocky and full of himself and undercut him as often as possible. I mean, the, like... The, There's like, she doesn't... Let me put it this way. She's not feminine and flustered, you know? She right. has this cool implacability, which actually the Haywire, obviously the uh, the mixed martial arts um, heroine of Haywire right, also Carano, has some of yes, that. has that. Well, so like the the Neplus Ultra of Soderbergh Girls is, um, is the, the woman in the underneath... God, I can't remember who played her. But so she... That is like a movie... Where because he was just coming off of um, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, he ha- I think had a lot of freedom to cast that movie. And so it's like Peter Green and Peter Gallagher have major roles. And it's uh, a noir that is actually one of my favorite Soderbergh movies, even though it really actually is a failure on almost every level. Um, but the girl in that is like – is the epitome of the Soderbergh girl. She's completely closed off. She's – She's a, I mean, she's a noir heroine and to the extent that you don't know anything about her. All you know is that she uh, is that she will be trouble for someone. And so and so in that way, this character is a little bit different in that she is meant as an escape valve, right? She's meant to be Magic Mike's way out. We're meant to see her as a representative of the real world 
viewing all this with bemusement and chopping him down to size a little bit, but that being something, despite how much we identify it with his character, that he needs that would be good for him, you know? Um, and so I like that. I had a few minor problems with the movie, but we haven't talked about that much about what I think is the most important thing about this movie. And what everyone wants to have spoiled. I believe I know what you're going to say. The dancing, right? You want to talk about the, the, the choreography, the dance scenes, the oh, nakedness. No? I was just going to talk about Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> well, okay. Maybe he's, maybe he's the core of that because he really does kind of own those scenes. Yes. But yeah, well, let's, okay, let's the go club. there. Yes, the club in general. So there is, a great, there is great choreography, not just in the dances that Channing Tatum does. But I, for example, having never been to a male strip club, I am dubious that the there are really such expertly choreographed routines. <laughs> we were talking about this on the way out. I've never been to a male strip club either, but there's no way. This is a complete fantasy of what a male strip club would be. And if such a club as this existed, I would go there every single oh, yeah. night. The thing I love about the way it's filmed, too, is that there's such a cliché... Cl- there's such a cliche of how to film the sleazy nightclub, right, with the kind of, I don't know, flashing psychedelic lights and everything feeling very kind of greasy and unwholesome. Right. And that does happen in one late scene that doesn't take place at the Exquisite Club when they take ecstasy, when right. Mike and, and what's the kid's name again, the kid, take ecstasy and go dancing together. That is kind of a cliched club scene. Right. But everything that happens at the Exquisite has this weird kind of like Broadway wholesomeness about it, which the choreography is really a huge part of, I think. I mean, of course, you've got your cowboy routine. There's a Tarzan routine where the Tarzan guys supposed to swing it on a rope but everything is very thematic and very costumed and high concept and i totally love that there's an it's raining men number where they come out i wish they'd really reprise this because it was just so golden they come well, out in raincoats and umbrellas Oscars, I think. just beautiful just i love the song it's raining men you can't get enough of it and the choreography is so corny that it could be sort of like a high school dance team or something right. and i think me dance. and john's favorite the one that we walked out talking and laughing about was the uh the medical themed strip scene <laughs> where a half naked man on a gurney is wheeled out and then two other half naked men are spinning the gurney around and then don't they put an audience member on the gurney and the guy's kind of dry humping her I mean, right it's but it's so like absurd. it's also sort of like cpr but not exactly it's sexual cpr yeah, baby sexual cpr uh to get the heart pumping but yeah so and there's like a whole there's a whole scene where they come out as soldiers and they and like matthew mcconaughey is the drill sergeant it's actually a little bit village people when you think about it oh and that was another angle i wanted to talk about with you is like where does the existence of gay men fit into this movie i mean because there's so much kind of uh man-on-man love right, right. The, the, the members of the uh, of the team at the exquisite all kind of love each other and when matthew mcconaughey takes alex Pettifer and trains him right there at a gym kind of lifting weights and he's training him how to dance there's essentially kind of a dry humping scene between them, right? Right. But, but, but everything seems to be taking place also on this very homosocial male bonding kind of plane. We don't see any gay patrons come into the club. There's not an implication that any of the dancers are necessarily gay. Certainly our two main heroes are straight as can be. Right. And I'm just wondering, I mean, obviously I think gay men are going to be part of the audience for this, right? But why do you think it is that they're not explicitly recognized in the movie? I, I, I have to assume that there are just strip male strip clubs that are essentially for a gay clientele as opposed to ones that are for a sorority girl oh, but clientele. But I'm talking more about the, the clientele for this movie. I oh, mean, sure, I agree yeah. that the place is being presented as a Chippendale-style bachelorette party spot, right? There's no reason that we should be expecting gay guys to be coming necessarily to that club. Right. They might have their own venue. But but what's their relation to this movie supposed to be? I, mean, I was just a little bit surprised that there wasn't somebody. There wasn't, like, one of the strippers who had a boyfriend or something like it's that. It's a good question. I have no idea. I mean, from a pure marketing standpoint, presumably you assume that the gay audience is a given, 
and so you don't include gay characters because then you potentially maximize your audience of straight people who might otherwise be, I don't know, offended by a gay stripper if they're not offended by strippers. <laughs> but they want but I they want to come see Matthew McConaughey dry hump Alex right. Pettifer in front of a mirror? Yeah, I don't know. My logic is falling apart even as I say it. I have no idea why why there's like no gay presence in the movie. Um, and even and I mean I think that that straight guys who might other who might otherwise not come to a movie if they feel that there is a gay subtext to it. This this movie is actually essentially free of homoeroticism. Like there are beautiful guys and they like slap each other on the ass and stuff, but it felt basically like being inside a football team's locker room. Like there's no actual homoeroticism that I could really unpack. Well, because there's no subtext. It's all right. just text. Right, right. It's like these guys are a team and they love each other, bro, and they give each other big hugs and clap each other on the back. And I mean, don't get me wrong. And... I hope that this movie leads to a huge wave of straight men oiling themselves up and sure. <laughs> grinding in front of mirrors together. Sure. But so let's get to your McConaughey points because since you think he should win the Oscar. Prize. Oh, I, I mean, I just think this is the greatest McConaughey role that has ever been made. It allows him. He never has a shirt on, even in the scene where he's looking over the club's books and he's wearing like bookkeeper glasses. He's still wearing a leather vest and nothing else. <laughs> At one point during the sandbar party, everyone else is drinking um, beers and plastic cups, but he is drinking out of a silver goblet. Oh, that's right. And he drinks wine all the time. I noticed that it was yes. a great, completely unexplained character detail. At one point, um, one of his dance routines, he just goes up on stage with a gigantic bongo drum in obvious reference to his infamous naked bongo-related meltdown of like 15 years ago. Oh, I don't remember the naked bongo-related meltdown. he was arrested for nakedly playing a bongo really loudly in front of the windows of his house and like being a public nuisance. Um, <laughs> Um, he gets to give great speeches about brotherhood and manhood and clap guys on the back. He dances. And then the end of the movie, the climax of the movie, the moment where Mike decides to hang it up and leave is is also uh, Matthew McConaughey's character's greatest moment. It's closing night of the club in Tampa. They're about to move to Miami. And he goes out to give the performance of his life, the summing up of his character's career as a stripper. And it's amazing. It's like it's passionate and intense and the women love him and it ends with him just like like shot from above lying on his back on the runway while women swarm over him <laughs> and just stuff dollar bills into everything they can touch. And it's great. It's like I mean it's a rapture. It's, it's the most sexual scene in the movie. Uh, and it's so great. And I just – I just feel like Matthew McConaughey is a guy who his whole career, his whole purpose has been to, like, make us happy. And this is the role that I think will make audiences more happy than anything else he's ever done. Yeah, you're totally right. It's like the ultimate Matthew McConaughey role is always just enjoying watching him be himself. Right. Which sort of happens in Tropic Thunder. It sort of happens in Dazed and Confused. Even though those are small parts, I feel like you get to see him at his sort of sort of perma-stoned seeming relaxed yes. best. Also, the body thing is completely his world, right? Yes. He actually does spend his life in front of mirrors building up his abs. It's not like he had to do anything for this movie. No, no. It's like that old, that old Matt Damon joke that he tells about Matthew McConaughey about how he's just just looking for a reason to take a shirt off in any scene. Like, you think I should take my shirt off in this scene? But this is the movie for him. He never has to put a shirt on. We also always want to hear him be very Texan, and he gets to be named Dallas and do yeah. his Texas accent and, like, really cowboy it up in this role as well. I mean, I guess if you view, like, a supporting actor Oscar, if the point of it is to give an award to someone who, like, steals a movie with a great comedic role slash 
plays like the ultimate version of themselves, like the persona we've grown to love, then this is like the perfect supporting actor Oscar role. I don't think he'll get nominated because I don't think the Academy will reward a movie that literally the last time we see him, we only see his ass and like the like the string of his thong <laughs> as he, bends oh, he takes over a deep bow, and right? Takes a deep bow to the audience and reviewing him from behind. Like I like I don't see them rewarding that, but God, would it be great if they did? Also, there's not enough pathos, right? It's not enough of an Oscar role because he's not dying or he's no. Not... But there's no like I think of this as like the equivalent of like Mira Sorvino and Mighty Aphrodite. There's no pathos to that role, but it's like a great comic performance that can get a supporting. If it was Best Actor, he'd never win. Yeah, that was no a pathos. totally out of left field Oscar. So who knows? Maybe right. he'll get one too. All right. Well, you're making me want to go back now and see Magic Mike again just for Matthew McConaughey. Oh, have your two and a half beers and go, man. This movie, <laughs> I hope this movie makes a trillion dollars. All right, Dan. Thanks so much for coming in to, to spoil with me. Thanks, Dana. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. It's raining men. Hallelujah. It's raining men. Hallelujah. Amen. Oh, amen. 